church. How's it going? We made it. We made it through 2020. Yay. I feel like we should all get t-shirts that say, like, I survived 2020. Um, but excited for a new year. I, I always get kind of this, this uh, kind of burst of energy first of the year. I think most people do, that, that fresh start. I, I love change personally. And so for me, a new year is like just new change. I'm that cliche person that's like, new year, new possibilities, right? Um, and so excited to, to jump off to a new series. Uh, we are starting a new series uh, today over the next few weeks called Credo, uh, Latin for I believe. And we're going to be looking at what, uh, what we believe uh, and going through a list of, of topics around what, what we believe here at the adventure. And um, it's, it's exciting because really, really what, what you believe changes the way you do things, it changes the way you think, it dictates a lot of what you do and how you live. And all of that starts with your belief system, or you might call it your worldview, or there's a lot of different words for it. And so we're going to be looking at, at a various uh, number of topics over the next weeks uh, that, that pertain to what we believe, and so that it will, it will really change the dynamic it really, this is our prayer, is that it will change the dynamic to what we do, how we act, how we think uh, moving forward. And I get the, the privilege of, of bringing you the first one here, which is on the cross. The cross, something that I'm very passionate about. I'm very excited to bring this message to you today. Um, Lord has, has really laid upon a, a really exciting um, uh, message for you guys. I think first service really got a lot out of it, so I'm excited to share with you guys. Um, but let me kind of introduce it this way. So name a, name a conquering hero. Just throw a name out. Really? Nobody? Alexander the Great. There you go. I'm like, boy, we need some more liberal art majors in here. Alexander the Great. Where's another one? Superman. All right, Prentice, go home. Just kidding. Alexander the Great, Superman, sure. Who else? King David. Oh, gold star. All right. Jesus, all right, that's sermon. She's already got it. She's out. Caesar, we we have a lot of kind of these these historical names that come to mind around conquerors, and and we we kind of idolize them a little bit. We look at their qualities. You know, I'm a I'm a historian by trade, and so I like to look at the qualities of leadership within some of these people. I I just got done reading a book by uh, around Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus. You guys ever heard of that? He defeated Hannibal. Uh, he was the Roman that defeated Hannibal. And so we, we like to study these, these heroes, these conquerors. But how many of you know that, as my friend here pointed out, Jesus is a conqueror? That, that he is actually a warrior king. I think that aspect of him gets, gets kind of glossed over, gets missed a lot in our society, that we actually have a warrior king as a lord. That he is someone who not only is, is a lamb, but he's also a king. And, and so we want to look at the cross from the aspect of a warrior perspective. And I'm going to tell you the story of, of how we can look at the cross from a place of triumph, from a place of victory. And, and, the, and really, I want to kind of put us into a place of a first century Jewish mind. Because to really understand the ramifications of what Jesus has done, you got to put yourself in that belief system. You have to put yourself in the worldview of Jesus, don't you think that's important to understand the word is to be able to understand it the way Jesus understood it, to understand it the way that Paul understood it. And so I want to do some, a, a kind of a different perspective today. I'm going to tell you the story of the cross and its ramifications from, uh, from the perspective of, of that, of a Jewish first person or a Jewish first century person. 
and how they interpreted what was going on in their world and the ramifications of that. So are you guys excited? Excited about that? All right. Well, really the life of Jesus, when we study that, is actually studying God's war on sin and rebellion. When we're looking at the frame of what Jesus does on the cross, we're looking at it from a place of war and a place of of battle and a place of fighting. And really what we see Jesus do, especially the last weeks and months of his life going up to the cross, we see him provoking the enemy. We see him starting to, to understand that he's going to go to the cross soon, and he's going to do a few things that, that really stand out of ways of provoking the enemy. He kind of, what we call is, a, as some scholars say, he's baiting the, the, the dark forces, the enemy, the, the powers that, that Paul talks about into leading to the cross. Because as Jesus will, will reveal himself, he reveals himself as, as, as God, he reveals himself as, as the Messiah, but the enemy doesn't know the plans, right? They understand who he is, we see the temptation that Jesus goes through, but they don't really know why he's there, right? If that was the case, they would have never sent him to the cross, right? And so Jesus is actually going to provoke them to the point of killing him. And uh, how many of you read the story of the transfiguration? That's a, a very interesting and wild story. But here we see Jesus' great provocation of the enemy. And really, when, when you understand the story of transfiguration, you have to understand the mountain that I go to. And in, in Jewish tradition, there was a mountain there called Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon was very significant to the Jewish mind in the sense that it is where in Genesis 6, the sons of God, this crazy story in Genesis 6 where these, these evil beings are rebel against God, and they actually will come and rebel on top of Mount Hermon in the Jewish tradition. And so obviously Jesus, understanding this, he goes to Mount Hermon with James, John, and Peter, his best friends, and he basically throws the gauntlet down to the enemy. Basically what happens is he goes to this, and if you read the story, he, he transfigures, he turns white and glows, and Elijah's there, Moses is there. And really what that does is he's saying, I'm Jesus, I'm the conqueror, and I'm going to take back what was mine. Right? The enemy came and they rebelled, they sinned, and, and the story goes that, that these ancient uh, evil beings actually had taken over the nations of the world. That the, the nations of the world were serving and, and worshiping these false gods. And so Jesus, by going, to the, by, by going to Mount Hermon, for sure, which we'll look at in a minute more, he's actually going there and revealing himself to these, these evil powers, the powers of death, of sin. And he's saying, I'm here, and I'm taking back what's mine. That's what the transfiguration is all about. It's that real major final step leading up to the cross. It's this, this laying down of the gauntlet saying, I'm here, come and get me. And the enemy goes, okay, well, we got to kill him. He's entering the kingdom of God. We got to kill him. That's the only way we're going to get to this. And so there's, we see the, the, the foundation of what leads Jesus to the cross. Obviously, he is very aware of this. And so we see the instrument to which the enemy wants to destroy Jesus being the cross. What's the most humiliating, mockingly way that we can kill the, kill the king? Right? By the cross. It was only used for slaves, for, rebel, for rebels. It was the, really the most humiliating way you could die in the ancient world was to be nailed to a cross. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's actually provoking and baiting in these, the, the death, the sin, the, the rebellious spirits that will end up actually putting him to the cross. So let's read about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And, and really, when, I, when you look at the cross, I want you to think of one thing, God's conquering of evil. That's what the cross says. Is we're going to look at, it's God's conquering of evil. 
All right, so let's read this. I'm going to read, you, I'm going to read the, the passage, Matthew 27, 35 through 46. I'm going to show you how uh, the biblical writers are using this war concept to show how we get liberated and really how Jesus will conquer evil, death, sin, and the rest. So read with me, William, Matthew 27, 35 through 46. He says, when they had crucified him, that being Jesus, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Ali, Ali, lemma sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what we'll see here as Matthew is recording the the events of the crucifixion is that he's actually, that Jesus is fulfilling an Old Testament Psalm. When you read Psalm 22, that will, it just screams Matthew 27. And so I want to first set the stage for this great battle of good and evil by comparing Matthew 27 with Psalms 22 to see the, the, the connections here because Psalms 22 really shows us who the Lord is triumphing over. Because if there's a triumph, if there's a war, there's always two sides. And Psalm 22 gives us a great example of who he is actually fighting. So look at Matthew 27, 35 and Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, for example. Matthew 27 says, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Psalm 22 says, they divided up his clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Fulfilled. Matthew 27, 39 and 41 compared to Psalm 22, 7, 17. Those who pass by hold insults at him, shaking their heads. Psalm 22 says, all who seek me, mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. And then again, Matthew 27, 46 says, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sebekthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Psalm 22 starts off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And so we see, again, Matthew is tapping into a very detailed and descriptive prophecy of Psalm 22. He's obviously hearing and learning about what happened on the cross, and it's just screaming fulfilling of the prophecies. And then you look at Psalm 22, it it also talks, it has the same characteristics of someone being crucified. Look at Psalm twenty-two, fourteen. It says, I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is, has turned to wax. It has melted within me. You see verse 15, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. You know that, that Jesus was, was thirsty. He was dehydrated. I mean, all of these characteristics of Psalm 22 have somebody of, uh, of a characteristic of someone being crucified. And so we see that Psalm 22 is a, is a, is a prophecy of, of someone being crucified. And Matthew is, is obviously making this connection. And what we see really is, is Matthew is displaying the connection that Jesus is waging war on the cross. 
that what Jesus is doing there is not um, just a, a helpless, desperate individual. He is actually waging war against the powers of evil and death, that this was willingly the plan of God to go and actually conquer death as a warrior king. In Psalm twenty-two, twelve. It says, many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, which gives us a very key indicator that something bigger is going on. And I'm going to explain what all that means in a moment. But I'm setting the stage here that on the cross, we see a battle taking place. We see a victory being placed in front of mockery, in front of insults. And what looks like a foolish and helpless endeavor, God is actually claiming victory over all of mankind. So let me talk about Bashan for a moment. When you hear the word Bashan, I want you to think of basically the, the, the gates of hell. Okay, This is the Old Testament Jewish kind of uh, way of looking at the gates of hell. Evil, death, sin, rebellion, all of that is encompassed in the word Bashan or the place Bashan. And we, we see it very similar. There's a lot of different words in Greek for the similar, for, for the gates of hell, but this is how the Old Testament writer and thinker is looking at rebellion, death, and sin, is that it's all found in Bashan. If you wanted to link demons and death in Judaism in the first century, you would have said Bashan. You're, you're in Bashan. You're taken by Bashan, which in Jewish tradition was on Mount Hermon, funny enough, which if you look at how it's spoken of outside of the Bible, Mount Hermon is called the place of the serpent has a great, really great connection to Genesis and the fall and rebellion. So it's a place where, where in Jewish tradition, you're looking at evil, sin, death. It's a, they look at it as a physical place on a mountain. And on, in Northern Israel, when the kingdom was divided with Jeroboam, we actually see this place being a, a place of, of worship, of idolatry, where that Northern kingdom rebels against God and, and actually rebel and, and worships false gods on the mountain Bashan. Amos has something to say to them. He's a, he's a minor prophet. You can read in the Old Testament, but he says this. He says in, in Amos 4, 1 through 2, he says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who suppress the poor and crush the needy, to say to your husbands, bring us drinks. That was probably referring to a priesthood of women who, who served the gods of Bashan. But listen to this in verse 2. It says, The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. So Amos is, is prophesying that there's this evil, dark mountain, this place of evil that rebelled against God. That was a place where, where rebellion started within the, the evil powers and darkness that, that encompassed this world, that there will be a time when the sovereign Lord will come and take back what was lost. That he will enter into the dark place on the mountain and he will rip out the evil that he will come and conquer what was dark, what was originally his, and he will take it back. That almost is, is prophesying this to the mountain of Bashan, the, the evil, the darkness, that it will be conquered. So the bulls of Bashan are, are linked to those evil and rebellious and demonic powers that God is waging war against. I think too often we, we think that God is waging war on, on us. You ever talk to somebody and they think that, oh, God just hates me. God, he's mad at me. He's all these things. But what we really see in the biblical writers is that God is waging war against the powers of evil, the powers of sin and darkness and rebellion that encompass a lot of what the Old Testament speaks about. 
So the bulls of Bashan, again, are evil, rebellious, and demonic powers. And the implication here is that Jesus' agony and death, he was surrounded by these bulls of Bashan, that, that through all of the agony and death he was suffering, there were these demonic powers saying, I got him, I got him, I got him. He's done. The kingdom of God is over. We put him on the cross in the most mockingly and insultive way possible. We put an end to Jesus. But what they don't understand is Jesus is hanging there going, I win, I win, I win. Because they don't understand what's going on. So let's talk about the Lord's victory over Bashan. Again, Bashan being the the evil, the centerpiece of evil and rebellion against God in the Old Testament. We see another Psalm in Psalm 68 that talks about two mountains. We see a mountain of Sinai. Mount Sinai is is really this place of God's presence. It's this this holy place. And then you have Mount Bashan, which again represents the evil and wickedness and, and sinful rebellion of creation. Okay, so you have two mountains. If we were going to put in today's words, it'd be like, this is the Denver Broncos, holy and righteous. Las Vegas Raiders, ugly and unholy. So this is what, this is what Jesus says, in, or this is what the, the Bible says in Psalm 68 about these two mountains. It says, Mount Bashan, majestic mountain, Mount Bashan, rugged mountain. Why you gaze and envy, you rugged mountain? At the mountain where God chooses to reign. So it has Bashan looking at Mount Sinai in envy and, 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 and just, it hates this mountain, okay? Where the Lord himself will dwell forever. And this is this in verse 17, the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. So we're talking about an, an unstoppable force coming towards Mount Bashan. So if you're Mount Bashan, you're, 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 you're kind of worried now because this army of thousands, it's unstoppable force is marching towards this mountain. And Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. And so we see the Lord God climbing the mountain of Mount Bashan and tearing down the evil, demonic, sinful strongholds. This is an exact representation of what Jesus does on the cross. That on the cross, he climbs the high mountain of Bashan and he tears down the death, destruction, oppression, and evil that is in the world. That's got a grip on the world. That's why when we look at the cross, we don't look at it as like a sad state of affairs. We see it as a conquest of our souls. We see it as a victory for the Lord has taken to the enemy. Bashan is unholy ground where Sinai symbolizes holy ground. So God wages war and conquers Bashan with an unstoppable force. The prophecy is that one day the warrior Lord God will tear down the strongholds of evil on Bashan and lead a train of captives down from the mountain. That he will go to Bashan and actually conquer it and bring hold the captives down. Who do you think those captives are? You and I. That in the war for humanity, the Lord warrior, the king warrior, conqueror, climbs the evil mountain of Bashan, conquers it, and as a plunderer, he takes the captives down with him. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of, what, of an ancient mind of what it means to be a conquering hero. 
you know, Paul being a, a Roman, he would have understood what a Roman triumph looked like. He would have been able to express and probably even seen Roman parades. And Romans were very good at celebrating conquest, almost down to an art. And they called them triumphs, actually. And a lot of times you would have the, the general would go through on a chariot and there would be lines and lines of captives that he carried with him. There would be tons of plunder and um, a funny word called booty, <laughs> which I used to laugh at because I'm 10. You know, and so they would pour that in and then they would just disperse it among the city. And so everyone would benefit from it. They would build grand amphitheaters and they would have massive feasts where tens of thousands would be fed. They would disperse their plunder across, um, across the city and across the region. And so Paul, understanding that what God has done on Bashan, that he's conquered death itself, that he's taken it to the enemy on behalf of us, and now we are held captives coming down to a train, he writes Ephesians 4.8. And he connects it, connects it with Psalm 68.18. He says in Ephesians 4.8, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he went up into the mountain of Bashan. He took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Look at Psalm 68:18 when it says, when he ascended on high, you took many, get, many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. So Paul, understanding that this is what God is doing, that he is actually becoming victorious on the cross. He's taking it to the enemy. He's tearing down the strongholds of sin and oppression, and he's bringing home the captives. Paul, looking at what Jesus did on the cross, isn't speaking necessarily of, of just liberation. He's speaking of an actual conquest of evil, an actual conquest of death. So when we look at the cross, do you see it as a conquest of evil? Do you see it as a conquest of sin and death and powers of, of, of darkness? Is that, does that ramification really hit home that the Lord has defeated death forever? That there is no second battle of Bashan. There is no yourself climbing the mountain and defeating evil yourself. That the Lord had to do it as a warrior king. He conquers the demonic strongholds. And the cross is the single point in history where this happens. The cross is used 20 plus times in the New Testament. It always refers to that single point on Calvary where he was hung on a cross to die where the whole world looked at him with shame and agony. People turned their eyes to him. He was naked as naked could be. And they thought this was a disgrace. Whereas God said, I love you, I love you, I love you, and I win. That's why the world looks at it as just foolishness. That's why the world looks at it as something that just seems ridiculous. That a warrior king would go and die on the most really the most embarrassing may you could possibly do. But yet that was a triumph over everything evil in this world. It was a triumph by the cross. And Paul recognizes this. Look at Colossians 2.15. Colossians 2.15, if they're going to pull it up for me here. There it is. Colossians 2.15 is it having disarmed the powers and authorities... This is of evil. He made a public spectacle of them. So imagine this. You have all these, these demonic spirits, the evil spirits of the world who think they just destroyed the kingdom of God on the cross. Yet he makes a public spectacle of them. He makes them look foolish. He makes them look ridiculous. 
He displayed that on the cross. He turned it around and said, this is who you are, you've lost. And he says, triumphing over them by the cross. That our victory was found on the cross. That the victory that God had had declared, had, had torn down was on the cross. Which makes Jesus a conquering king. Not a conqueror of of borderlands, not a conqueror of square miles, but the conquering for our souls. That he is the greatest conqueror who ever lived and existed. And the battle was won on the cross. That's why I have no shame in wearing it around my neck. That's why I have no shame in putting it up on the walls. That's why I have no shame in in putting it on, on our churches because it's the symbol of our victory in Jesus. It's the symbol, it's the place where God triumphed over evil forever. And I think you just think of that vision of, of ancient world and conquering heroes and kings holding these massive triumphs and parades and, and dispersing the, the plunder back into their cities. The believers are the plunder. That's the image that Paul's trying to make here is that we have a conquering king who climbed the mountain, who took the blood, took the fight to the enemy, tore down the strongholds, came down the mountain with believers. The believers who by faith accept him as Lord and Savior are the captives that he holds tight, that he secures, that he hides away. He says, these are mine. They have no, the power of death and sin has no grip on them any longer. That they have now been brought home and now they're going to be dispersed. Jesus Christ went to the cross knowing he was going to endure the hardships. But he did that because he loves us. It was love that sent him to the cross, right? The cross is a symbol again of the victory of Jesus. And when he, when he was on the cross and he yelled, Tethelestai, it is finished. He meant it. It's done. The war is over. The resurrection is salt in the wound already. Resurrection shows this is who I am. The resurrection is proof of who God is. That he is the God of the living, not of the dead. So when a believer in Christ looks to the cross... You know, we don't see a a defeated Jesus. We don't see a shame. We don't see the the agony and the irony. Obviously, we we look at that and we go, oh man, he loved me so much that he did that. But what we really see is victory. What we really see is, is an eternal hope. What we really see is that we are captives of a war that Jesus fought for us as our king. That one day we will be paraded as a triumph in heaven as his captives, as his people, as people who hold tight to our king. I love that he was a king who took back what the enemy tried to steal. He didn't leave us stranded. He went after us. He said, Bashan is mine. The people of Bashan are mine and I'm going to take them back. What was stolen from me in Genesis 6 was taken back by Jesus on Calvary. 
that we now as a people, as captives of the warrior king in a triumphal per se, we get to now live a life of going out and and resuming that conquest of the nations of, of, of earth. That we have been empowered to now go with a belief that our victory is sealed to now see other captives of Bashan brought home. But that is now our opportunity through what Jesus Christ has done. That's why Paul says the message of the cross. Proclaim the message of the cross, which is a victory and hope in Jesus above everything else. A dependency upon him as a captive. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. It says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, that God dwells inside of you as a captive who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Remember what Jesus did on the cross. He went up the hill of Bashan. He took the shots. He bled the blood. He broke the body. He climbed the mountain. Not for just himself, but to conquer death for you. So we are not our own any longer. We do not live for ourselves any longer. We were bought at a price. Every victory in, known, in, in any history book will be bought with a price, will it not? The cross is how we remember that price. The cross symbolizes and was the mercy seat where that price was paid. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. God's pouring out on the cross where he, Jesus literally became sin itself for us. That's, you know, Jesus, when he was going through the crucifixion, it wasn't the agony, it wasn't the suffering, it wasn't the mockery. It was the forsaken by God that got him. It was the fact that God turned his eyes, said, I can't even look at you because of us. The conquest was done because Jesus had to become sin for us. That went well over the eyes and ears of the enemy. They were completely out of the loop. And that pouring out on the cross led to a pouring out in you. If you were a believer in Christ, you've been poured out the very spirit of God that was purchased and bought and paid for because of that fight, that war that happened on the cross. Because now we have the opportunity as a people to continue to take the fight to the enemy. We are not a people who have been empowered to not fight. We are captives in the army of the warrior king who brought us out under the the powers of evil and darkness so that we could go and continue to fight that fight today until Jesus returns. And we remember, we remember the cross. We don't look at it with shame. We don't look at it with disgrace. We look at it and honor the, the symbol that it means, the victory that was fought. 
We wear it around us. We ride it on our arms because we want to remember the war that was fought for us. So if you have your your communion, we're going to do that in remembrance of him. First, take the bread here. The body, which represented with the bread, was crushed and bruised and beaten. Symbols of, of a warrior king fighting a fight for us. And as he was sitting there with his disciples at Passover, obviously knowing and understanding what was about to take place, he wanted us to remember that body that was broken for him. Remember that body that was broken for us that he was about to go to war for us, that he was about to climb the mountain for us. He was about to endure the hardships on the cross for us. So we remember when we take the bread of a warrior king who was bruised and battered for us. Before we get to the, the juice here and the blood, I just want you to bow your head for a second and take a few minutes. Pause the heart, stop the mind. And I want you to think about the ramifications of what that just means that Jesus bled for you. Name anything else in this world that would have bled for you, let alone died for you. Because of a great love for you. That God would send his very best climb the mountain of Bashan to endure the agony and the torture of the cross to see you freed to see death conquered forever because of the blood so just take a few minutes if you need to give something to the Lord now's the time to really surrender it over And with the blood, he said that there was going to be a new promise, a new covenant by his blood. That the victory would be won by the blood, the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. So take this with me, will you? You know, I think, got any C.S. Lewis fans in the house? Got a few. One of the most beautiful depictions of what Jesus did on the cross is seen in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Where Aslan, who is represented as as Jesus in the book, he's led forward to the stone table, surrounded by all these creatures that are mocking him, insulting him, hating him. They shave the lion's mane, they put him down on the table, and they kill him. And the enemy rejoices in victory that we won, we won, we won, we won. The king is dead. The king is dead. But our Lord overcame death. Just as Aslan rose from the dead and won the great victory at the end of the book, our Lord rose from the dead. He claimed a victory on the cross so that we could be freed from the powers of of sin and death forever. So this week, as we, as we start this 2021 year, 
I know 2020 was hard. I know there's, there's multiple reasons in individuals' lives why 2020 was hard. But the Lord gave me a, a word last week about 2020. He says that in victory, he still claims 2020. That the world will remember 2020 for COVID, that the world will remember 2020 for all the, all the things that happened. But we, the captives of the warrior king, will remember that 2020 was still the year of our Lord. That he's undefeated over 2,000 years. There's nothing that can take away what he did for us on the cross. And that 2021 is going to be another year where we find our hope, our forgiveness, our love. All of it comes from what our Lord did on the cross. So you can stand firm and believe in that. Because if you have security and root, it's rooted in Jesus, there is nothing that can touch you. There is nothing that can make you stumble. You are rooted as a captive of our conquering King. Amen. We stand, let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for what you did. Lord, that you took the war to the powers of death and sin, that you conquered death for us, that you became sin for us so that we could be freed, that death would be conquered and that we could have eternal life in you, that we can then be empowered to continue to take the fight to the enemy. That the same power that rose you from the dead lives and dwells in us today. Help us to remember that we are not our own. That we are yours. Captives of a mighty war that you waged against death. Help us to to see and live that out more clearly in our lives. Help us to be a people that lives selflessly more than we did in 2020 and even greater tomorrow to live a life that is devoted and dedicated to you, hidden away, secure in our conquering King. Empower us, Lord. Give us the visions that we need, the direction that we need to be able to take those steps forward, knowing and understanding whose we are. We belong to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the conqueror of death that was all built on the triumph of the cross. Help us never to see that watered down. Help us to never look at the cross as anything less than a triumph for you. But there is our victory. There lies our hope. There lies the love that you've poured out for us. Let us never forget that. Thank you, Lord, for all you are doing in our hearts and our minds right now. Amen. Amen. Well, we'll see you next week as we continue the Credo series. Appreciate all you guys who are viewing online, and God bless.